Welcome back to the London Futurist Podcast. OpenAI's ChatGPT and picture-generating AI systems like MidJourney and Stable Diffusion have got a lot more people interested in advanced AI and talking about it, which is a good thing. It will not be pretty if the transformative changes that will happen in the next two or three decades take most of us by surprise. A company that's been pioneering advanced AI for longer than most is IBM, and we are very fortunate to have with us today one of IBM's most senior executives. Alessandro Curioni has been with the company for 25 years. He's an IBM fellow. He's director of IBM Research and vice president for Europe and Africa. Alessandro, welcome to the London Futurist podcast. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Alessandro. It's great to have you with us. Alessandro, we should definitely talk about the breakthrough that you've just announced in making cryptography safe for the future when we have powerful quantum computers. But before we get to that, let's talk a bit about AI and IBM. You must have joined the company soon after Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov at chess. And you were certainly at IBM, I think, when Watson won the TV quiz game Jeopardy. So what was it like working there then? Working in IBM Research has been, uh, for me, a wonderful experience since the first day. Because in IBM Research, what we are trying to do is really to invent the future of computing. And we have done this for more than 70 years. Referring to AI, we have done a series of grand challenges, like the one on chess, and then the one to try to create an AI machine that could win a Jeopardy. And further, we created a debater system that has been able to host a debate with European debating champions and debating on very complex systems. And, you know, we have used always these grand challenges to test and advance the world of artificial intelligence. During these 25 years, many things changed. We went from systems that were rule-based, so you can have a machine that takes certain decisions on the basis of a set of rules that we are putting on the table, we went to machines with deep learning in which you can use data, annotate data, and then use these annotated data to create models that are able to do very accurately very specific tasks like image recognition or discrimination in data. So that's the move from good old-fashioned AI to deep learning, isn't it? Yes, that was a big transformation from the old-fashioned to the deep learning. But we are now going through an additional big transformation, that is this transformation of these big models called foundation models in AI that are created on the base of data, but using self-supervision by the machine itself. So you don't need to have humans to annotate data in order to create the AI models. The machine, in an autonomous way, once you have a huge amount of data, learn from the data and learn trying to get out the connection from this data. You create these big models that are, for example, base of chat GPT or the other big generative models that everybody can use today. 
These big language models, these foundation models, they are using transformer systems, aren't they? Which is a type of deep learning, but a more recent type launched in 2017, I think, with the Attention is All You Need paper. Yes, they use a specific type of model. There is also an evolution there, on which are the best type of model to create these big, large models. But the most innovative things is the ability to use self-supervised learning. And why we can use self-supervised learning? And I will explain what it means. We can use it because we have a huge amount of data and also a huge amount of computing that become available thanks to cloud and thanks to many AI accelerators that are available on the clouds now. So this self-supervised learning, think about the following. Take all the sentences, plain English, that you can find on the web. You collect them. Then you take out randomly one word from each of the sentences and you ask the machine to try to guess which is the word that you take out. And then, you know, if you do this in an automatic way for all the sentences and for many words, the machine is going to learn by itself which are the right words that are in sentences. So if you bring this and bring this to scales, then you have machines that once you ask a question, Using all the connection that they do have, they come up with a relatively good and reliable answer. And this is a fact that you are able to automate the learning phase at scale that will bring and is bringing a big revolution. This idea of self-supervised learning, of course, isn't completely new. People have speculated for decades that it would be better if AIs could learn by themselves instead of being dependent on large groups of humans to annotate. But in the past, whenever that was tried and AIs tried to self-learn, they would make mistakes early on and they would build nonsense out of what they'd initially got wrong. In other words, the learning was unstable rather than stable. So what is it more recently that's led to this self-supervising, producing deeper understanding or a deeper correct understanding of language syntax than before? One thing that was mentioned before, right, we have these new models called transformers that do have the ability to get short-range connection between words in the sentences, so that make the full things more efficiently. But the biggest and largest step came from the availability of a huge amount of data and a huge amount of computing. So without AI accelerator scales and big infrastructure using a lot of data, you could not get good models. Once you have a lot of sentences, we are speaking about hundreds of billions and more, and you try to bring all these things together, statistics is able to correct noise and what you call the errors. But the very interesting thing is that this revolution of foundational models and self-supervised learning doesn't apply only to languages. So language and text, it's the first use and everybody can see, right, what you can do. But eventually you can use the same things on any type of data that have a 
structure or a strong structure inside. For example, you can use uh, for data streams that happen in uh, processes. Think about industrial processes and working of big uh, machines. If you have sensor, you have data streams that are time series, right? And they do have a structure inside. So you can learn from this uh, structure. You can learn, for example, even the language of science. Think about chemistry. Chemistry, organic chemistry, you know, you have molecules that are translated in symbols. It's chemistry. And you can use uh, these uh, symbols in the same way you are using sentences to train a model that eventually is able to learn organic chemistry and then use it to predict the outcome of organic reaction. But you can use also in software. Think about software codes, what it is. It's a language and there's a strong structure inside. If you have a big database of piece of codes that are doing certain things, you can train a foundation model for software and so on and so forth. So now we are seeing the early applications on text with what has been exposed with ChatGPT, but the transformatory power and even better outcomes will come when we start to create very sophisticated and accurate foundation models for business-oriented applications like the one that I told you before. Which is going to be very interesting. The famous foundation models are mostly from OpenAI with GPT-3 and ChatGPT and from DeepMind with Gatto and Palm and others, and from some startups like MidJourney and Stable Diffusion. Does IBM have such a model? We are uh, creating models like those for particular application, as I was telling you before. For example, we are working uh, to create uh, this type of model. We already have something that we have exposed uh, in the cloud uh, for the prediction of organic chemical reaction, but we want to go further to have uh, the full uh, chemistry, so foundation model for chemistry, for example. Other application more in the business uh, fields. And why this? Because uh, one of the problems that you are having and is apparent now to everybody with uh, these uh, very general foundation models, uh, is that they are relatively shallow. They can connect and eventually, if you ask something, give an answer on a topic, at high level or, you know, at the surface, appear very good. But if you want to go deeper and to take out the very peculiarity and the very strong specialization that you need sometimes to take decision, you know, in business or in science, these models get a little bit lost because they are relatively shallow. If instead to create something that is fully general, you try to specialize in specific fields, like I told you, operation of machines, chemistry, science in general, and you can go on, right? Click streams in the way you use the web, etc., etc. You can create eventually models that they are more accurate and deeper for the need of your business. That makes a lot of sense. One of the frequent criticisms of ChatGPT is that it makes mistakes and it doesn't know when it's making mistakes. And that's a, a real problem. So some people have said that ChatGPT is a major threat to Google search, but it clearly isn't unless it can be clear whether it's making mistakes or not. 
Google just launched a model which works specifically in healthcare, which has been found to be more accurate than human doctors in basic diagnosis, which is really impressive. Now, is that because it is sector-specific, therefore not shallow in the way that you're talking about, that it can be more reliable? There are two things. One is that if you have enough data and, you know, you try to focus, and also you have a better quality of data, right? So you can pre-select the data. You can get models that eventually are better for the outcomes. On the other end, that requires some pre-work that bias in a positive way the result that you are going to take. And, you know, the bias on these uh, big models is another very important uh, point. You know, if you bring in all the data, of course, uh, even if it's huge and you can have self-correction, but, you know, you bring in also the full bias of the data that you do have. You know very well uh, that uh, once you want uh, instead to take something of this uh, for business, uh, you need to make sure that this bias and the negative bias is corrected because uh, otherwise you can come up with results that are not only bad, uh, they may be unethical. So the curation of the bias in the data and in the models uh, is something very important when you want to go from a very general one to something that you can use really for business. And that is another problem that you do see in these uh, very large models if you are not trying to detect and correct this bias. There is the full bias of what you learn and can be biases in the processes, but it can be bias uh, that are gender related. It can be biases that are race related. It can be bias age related. All the biases that you can think uh, goes in these models. So that is why when you do the step and you want to specialize, you also can help to have better models trying to correct the bias that goes in the model itself. I've heard there are two things that companies might do to get models that are more tailored to their own needs and where companies like yourself, IBM, might help these clients. One is to train it on their intranet, their own internal logs of customer discussions, their own specialist knowledge, which is not on the public web and which would not be therefore included in the general large language models. So that's one option. But another thing is we should talk about RLHF, that's reinforcement learning with human feedback. I understand that one of the differences between GPT-3 and the chat GPT is that OpenAI actually did bring in humans to review lots of the feedback. Yes. It gained its initial knowledge from self-supervised learning, but then had large numbers of humans saying, you can't say this, this is biased, this is sexist, this is inappropriate. Potentially, you could have people with deep knowledge of your client's particular business providing the same RLHF and therefore improving the model. That is exactly the point. And by the way, putting the human in the loop is equivalent to correct the bias, as I was telling you before, with data. Because what you bring in, you know, is additional data that come from human. It's exactly that. And by the way, that is another big power of foundation models. And probably is going to create a series of different business models in AI. Why? 
Because if you are a company that is able to integrate everything that is publicly available around one topic and create a big model, then using simply some additional data that may be our proprietary or uh, is a human loop, using reinforcement learning, you can create much smaller models that are smaller and require only a small set of annotated data, the human input, that specialize in a subfield. And this, you know, think about if you are a company that own the big model, then you can charge and create a business for the creation of these smallest models for your customers. Example. I can create a huge uh, foundation model for security, IT security, bringing in all the logs, all the things, a huge one. And then I could uh, specialize and create specialized small models uh, to do threat detection, to do uh, reparation of the security problem, to do investigations, are all different things that doesn't require the big model. Indeed, the big model is going to give uh, less accurate results, but you can specialize and create smaller, very agile models with only a subset of data and human intervention. Is there not the danger, though, that you're falling into that old joke that if you do that, you're moving from AI standing for artificial intelligence towards it standing for affordable Indians? <laughs> no. I don't think so, because I do believe that if uh, one is doing this correctly, the outcome of this is going to have uh, much more effective and efficient uh, artificial intelligence for business. And, you know, when I say more efficient and effective, think the old way to create uh, deep learning models for any new model, you need it to have huge amount of data, huge amount of human annotation, huge amount of compute power to create a single model. And once you created this single model, for example, to do image recognition of a certain type, and you needed to create an, another one similar, most of the time you throw away everything you had and you recreated a new one. Or a different company was throwing away everything and recreate a new one. So the return of investment of AI and also the sustainability of AI to solve business or bigger problems of our world depend exactly on the amount of money and energy that we need to put for the creation of the model itself. If you are able to create these big ones and then use much less compute and data to replicate the ones that are more specific, the full things make become much more efficiently, and maybe we get really to have an AI that is really helping us to solve some of our problems in a sustainable way. You don't want to have an AI IT system that solves a problem, but once you solve a problem, you create another one, especially today. On the question of energy and efficiency, how important is IBM's work on new hardware platforms? Famously, neuromorphic computing is one of the things IBM's often spoken about. If you had your True North chip and more recently our Loihi chip, is that critical to making AI more generally applicable with less costs? 
I think that is a very important ingredient to do this. The world already moved from general purpose computing to GPU computing exactly because the GPUs were more efficient for AI. GPUs are more efficient, but by far not efficient enough. What we try to do is to go from this accelerator to different type of accelerators for AI. You can do in, in, I would say, three steps, and IBM is doing the three at the same time. One, to create AI accelerators that uh, are able to create a deep learning model and do inference using what I say is a lower precision computing. When you learn something and you want to learn AI model, it's not so important that all the computation is done with 16 digits. Because the things that you want to be able to do is, you know, to have a model that is able to discriminate a glass from a bottle, but you don't want to have exactly that glass for that dimension is a glass and a bottle. So you can admit some lower precision. So we created AI accelerator chips and cards that uh, are able to change the precision while they are creating the model and use the right precision for the right step of the AI. Doing this, uh, you already get a factor of 10, one order of magnitude better energy efficiency. Then you can do one additional step. And by the way, all these steps connect uh, at high level to how our brain really works. Our brain is not full precision, it's not digital, it's analog. The second step, our brain is doing computation and storage of data at the same place, neurons and synapses. So the second step that we have done was to create AI accelerators that use in-memory computing. You use devices where storage and compute is done on the same device. These are called memristors, is that right? Memristors is a physical implementation of in-memory computing. You can use other devices, but exactly go in this direction. There you get an additional one to order of magnitude efficiency. And then you can go even to the limits, and that is more speculative. You can create structures that are spiking neural networks that is exactly as our brain is working, eventually there one could get an additional step in energy efficiency. You can get with this Ranger architecture from two to four order of magnitude better energy efficiency. This is translate to a much smaller CO2 footprint because at the end, the energy that you use you can do whatever, you know, to use renewable, etc., etc., but connect also with the CO2 footprint. So that is why I was saying, if we do these things, then eventually we can have AI models that help also sustainability. Because they are able to try to solve the problem, but they don't create more energy usage and more CO2 than the one that you try to solve. That's really interesting. Now, something that I know you're very excited about, you announced it just in the last couple of days or so, I think, is a breakthrough that IBM has made in quantum cryptography, which will enable data that we are creating now to be secure, even when quantum computers, if and when they destroy 
most current forms of cryptography and the keys that people use are no longer any use. So do you want to tell us about what you've achieved there and its significance? The significance is enormous because uh, all the cryptography, the advanced cryptography that is used today in computing, in IT, in the internet, the cryptography that we are using to do authentication when we log in to our bank account, to our emails, or that we are using for digital signature of contracts where we buy an house, is in danger because quantum computing is going to crack this crypto. That is a reality. Why? Because we already know that there is a particular algorithm that is a sure algorithm, when run on a quantum computer, is able to factorize big numbers with a complexity that is not exponential, but is polynomial. Whereas on a digital computing, you require an exponential complexity. These quantum computers are going to break this case. That is why several years ago, we in IBM, in collaboration with many other academic entities and groups, we started to develop what we called quantum-safe crypto. What is quantum-safe crypto? It's a new form of crypto that is based on a different algorithms. The ones that we have developed, the most successful ones, are based on lattice cryptography. It's like solving a very big sparse linear systems in high dimension. These algorithms cannot be broken by a quantum computer. So a quantum computer cannot break these algorithms. And so even if we would have a universal quantum computer with a huge amount of qubits, we do know that the quantum computer, for what we do know today, by the way, because the field is evolving, will not be able to break this new crypto. In these past six years, the community led by NIST, the National Institute of Standards United States, went through a standardization process of all possible different types of quantum cryptography. And in July 2022, they came out with a definition of these standards. They came out with four algorithms. Three of the four algorithms were developed in IBM research in my laboratories in Zurich. We do have now algorithms that we do know are stable and safe with respect to quantum computing. And now we are going through a process to try to migrate from old crypto to this new crypto. The urgency of these migrations is increasing every day. A few days ago, I don't know if you have seen a group of Chinese researchers publish a paper in which they state that with a mixed classical and quantum computer with only 400 plus qubits, they do believe that they will be able to break the RSA 2048 keys. We are examining this paper and the community already saying that there are a lot of big question marks, so not sure that that is real. But uh, the full world and the computational infrastructure that we have available is evolving so fast that uh, it's not something that will happen in 10 or 20 years from now. It is something that is going to happen much sooner than uh, we may believe. I understand that some of the criticisms of this so-called quantum apocalypse paper 
I think that's a nickname that's been given to it. Yes. Some of the criticism is that it actually does make some extrapolations. Yes. It hasn't been done yet. No. And they've used a very small number of qubits. Yes. And they're saying, well, in the future, we should be able to do this. Yes. Whereas people say, actually, that ramping up the scaling is going to be much harder. But we don't know. I fully agree. But the thing that I was only trying to communicate, if you go back five years and you look at publication, how many qubits you will need to break an RSA keys with a standard shore. So we're several millions. And then with time, the number of qubits plus classical that people think is needed to break it, it went down, 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 year per year, months per month. If uh, you were to ask me when this would happen, six years ago, my answer would have been in 10, 20 years. If you ask me now when this is going to happen, I'm going to tell you in two to five years. Wow. That's my personal feeling on this. You've kind of identified a new Y2K problem and solved it. Well done. The big difference is that the Y2K was one date. Here, there is a range, and the range in which it is important for you to change something depends on the risk that you have. Yeah, yeah. If you are a government that has mission-critical data that are very sensitive, even 20 years in the future, yeah. it is something that you need to do now. Because you don't know if somebody has already a quantum computer and an algorithm that is able to do it and they didn't publish. So if you have, a, let's say, a final user, so the crypto that I do have here, you know, you don't have the same type of urgency. So there is a range, but everybody has to start to quantify the risk now. On the base of risk, you need to implement adequate uh, measures to mitigate disease. By the way, there are governments like uh, the United States, the White House, they sent out a couple of executive order in which they do say that all the national agencies are going to become quantum safe by 2025. And by 2023, you need to have uh, the full inventory and map uh, how to move to quantum safe. Other governments are already changing the full critical infrastructure to become quantum safe. Companies that have sensitive data, they are starting today to migrate to quantum safe. That could accelerate from a day to the other, depending advances and news that come out. This is serious stuff because most governments actually have secrets they want to keep for many decades. The US government still hasn't published all of its findings into the Kennedy assassination. The British government has things it keeps secret, I think, for more than 100 years because it's still embarrassed as to what might be found out. Yes. Now, as we wind up the conversation, maybe I can tempt you as a futurist to speculate about one other future development, which is, could these scaling up systems with more hardware, with more data, with more efficient chips, could they get to the state of passing the Turing test anytime soon? <laughs> and what would that mean? Is IBM interested in that? After all, we've spoken about the various grand challenges that IBM has set itself. Yes. Beating the best chess player, defeating the best Jeopardy quiz show players, defeating the best debater. 
Callum's asked me in the past whether there should be a IBM challenge for passing the Turing test. Is that on your horizon? I think that is a very good question. That depends on the goal that you put forward for the work that you are doing. Getting towards more than simple test, but getting towards general artificial intelligence is a path that the world is on and is accelerating. Telling when this is going to happen, if it's going to happen, is a very difficult question. I will not say you, it will never happen. I'm only saying now that looking where we are, also with this self-supervised learning, we will be able to do much better, much more, much more effectively, but we are still very far away from that. Regarding the goal for us as a company, and that is a decision that we have taken as a company, we would like to put us goals, and that is what we have done with the challenges that we had in the past and will continue to do in the future, to create machines and IT machines that help people to do their work, to live much better and in a much effective way than they were doing in the past. So we try to put challenges that augment our intelligence in directions that today we cannot reach, more than trying to get something that gets general artificial intelligence that is trying to redo what we are already doing very well. You know, this is the focus and the ethical focus that we have as a company. Brilliant. One big challenge we are in, and I am personally driving this strategy for IBM research, is this challenge of accelerated discovery, where we do believe that uh, the synergies between quantum, AI, cloud, all put together, are going to accelerate uh, scientific discovery by at least uh, one order of magnitude in speed and one order of magnitude in energy efficiency and time. Why this is so important? Because if we are able to accelerate scientific discovery, then we can tackle climate change much better. We can tackle energy storage much better. We can tackle food production much better, pandemic much better. And that is something that uh, it is augmenting the ability of a scientist. It's not trying to substitute the scientist. That is our view of IT and our view of evolution of artificial intelligence. Well, Alessandro, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you for giving us a peek into what IBM is up to. Long may you continue your fantastic work. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful vision you finished with. That's a note that's definitely worth underscoring. Thank you. Thank you all.